Hello and welcome to the Higher Education Researcher. This is a podcast by the Centre for Higher Education Research and Evaluation at Lancaster University. Uh, my name is On Rawcott and today we are hosting Professor Paul Ashwin from Lancaster University, Head of the Department for Educational Research. Welcome, Paul. And uh, Paul recently published a book with a title, Transforming University Education, a manifesto in this book. Paul shows how, around the world, economic arguments have come to dominate our thinking about the purpose and nature of university education. He argues that we have lost a sense of the educational purposes of an undergraduate degree and the ways in which going to university can transform students' lives. The focus of the book is therefore very timely and is connected to the ongoing policy debates in the UK. So before we start, Paul, would you mind briefly introducing yourself and maybe talk a little about your research interests in general? Yeah, um, so I, as you said in the introduction, I'm a professor of higher education and head of department um, at Lancaster, um, where this podcast is hosted. Um, I'm also um, deputy director of a centre for global higher education, which is a ESRC and Research England funded research centre led by the University of Oxford. That's a partnership of a number of international um, universities. And um, within that centre, I lead a project where we're looking at students' experiences of studying chemistry and chemical engineering degrees in England, South Africa and the United States. And what we're doing in that research is we're focusing on the experience of studying a degree in those subjects, how that impacts on students' sense of who they are and what they can do in the world. And now in a follow-on project, we're look, looking at what students do um, after they graduate. And really that gives a sense of where my research is really focused. I'm interested in what studying for a degree does for students educationally and what they're able to do in the world as a result of studying for that degree. Yes, and I think this lines up with the, with the manifesto that we're going to talk about. But uh, before we go into the subject of it, if you could just summarise your manifesto in a few sentences, what would you say? Well, I think you did quite a nice job with that in, in your introduction. Um, my sense is that it's very much what I've become interested in is this sense about educational arguments for the benefit of higher education. A lot of the debates about higher education are kind of tend to be largely economic in terms of greater salaries people earn. Um, there's also kind of political arguments about people who study for a degree less likely to commit crime, more likely to be healthy. Um, but actually, whilst those things, I can see why they're important, what gets lost in those discussions is what does a degree do educationally? What is it that students gain from studying a structured bodies of knowledge that actually means that that process of studying is important in and of itself. And what I try and do um, in the book is I try and outline what educationally university degrees are trying to do, what a high quality degree looks like from that perspective and how we might measure it and then follow the implications of that through in terms of how we think about um, the nature of an undergraduate degree, the quality of an undergraduate degree, and how we measure that quality. 
I see. So before we go deeper into the content of this, I want to talk about the manifesto's style, because you say in it that it is not an academic text, although it is informed by evidence and research. The tone of it is quite personal, and you mention this um, in, in the manifesto itself as well. Where do you think these kind of texts live in the researcher's canon, and would you, or how would you encourage researchers to produce similar texts? Um, I think the more research that I've done um, over my career, the more important I think it is to have a range of different ways of writing. So I think when I when I started out, um, you know, uh, twenty odd years ago, I kind of you know you almost expect everyone to read journal articles, and they just don't. Um, and so it's about well, how do you communicate from different audiences with different audiences, and what way ways of communicating work with different audiences. So I think when I started this book, it was very much, you know, the intention was trying to reach a kind of wider audience. And to a degree that was successful, because certainly, you know, compared to other things I've, I've, I've written, it's kind of much more widely read, um, but it's still very much read by people in higher education. So whilst it speaks beyond kind of higher education research, to a wider audience. I wouldn't say it particularly speaks to people outside of higher education. So it's been partially successful in that way. My, my, my sense is that where it fits is that, the, in, in terms of the other writing I do, is it that this isn't really about um, the outcomes of, of research I've done. It's far more about taking the body of knowledge that I'm engaged with and trying to think of ways of making that accessible to a broader range of people. So what are the implications of higher education research in the area that I work? And how can I bring that knowledge um, to the awareness of a greater range of people? And I think it's really important for um, those engaged in research and higher education practices to think about those ways of communicating and to try and get those ideas out there and as I've said, in, in terms of the purpose of this book, it's very much about, you know, trying to kind of get, get a sense of what educational thinking is, rather than simply kind of um, thinking that kind of political economic thinking in its own terms is, is enough for, in order for people to understand what education is trying to achieve. I see. Um, that's great. Thank you. So at the start of the manifesto, you mentioned the crises of higher education. You, know, you mentioned crisis of funding, leadership, mission and governance, access and inclusion, student debt, graduate employment, um, and humanities and social sciences, and even crisis of morality you mentioned. And you do argue that um, the crisis of the economy or labour market are portrayed as the crisis of higher education. And um, your manifesto says that it's not about these crises. I know that. But where do you think we are in the UK, especially on these crises right now? Um, I think so. So I think part, part of what informs the book, part of its kind of sensitivity, is that you can look at, you can take the lens of crisis onto any situation. So in any situation, you can think about, OK, God, this is really awful. Look at all these things that are happening. And certainly in terms of higher education in England, there are a lot of deeply worrying things happening. So in terms of, I, I would say, the politicisation of the regulation of um, higher education in England. So the shift from the Higher Education Funding Council for England to the Office for Students, 
along alongside that and increasingly that's becoming political very um driven by diktats of government ministers whereas the hefty as they were called kind of had an arm's length relationship and kind of act as a as a kind of buffer between higher education um universities and ministers now with um the office of students there's a much more direct link of the higher education minister or the education minister saying they want this to happen and then the the office for students developing something an initiative in order to meet that priority so that that's deeply worrying in terms of an education you know an education perspective and trying to have something that makes knowledge accessible to as broad a range of as people as possible you know financially there's lots of challenges following on from covid you know, there's a number of, again, in England, a number of really worrying situations in the, the arts and humanities, of course, is being closed of post the research excellence framework outcomes, a number of courses kind of being shut and, and access to a range of subjects being limited. So, so, so certainly there, there, there's a rich territory for a crisis narrative. If you think globally, you know, higher education is incredibly popular you know the you know the number of people who see the value in studying for a degree who really want that for them or for their children is incredibly high so so there's also grounds for optimism and and so so for me it's about it's, it's about always balancing those things is is not being complacent and smug about the wonder of higher education always accepting there are challenges there are things we can improve but also recognizing the great value that that many societies place on higher education and, and just trying to to not you know in, in a way despair is 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 a kind of luxury you kind of need to think about what we can do rather than just saying oh my goodness this is horrific yes yes i do agree and how do, i mean you did mention this a little bit in terms of for example the shifting from hefki to office office for students but how do you think these crises as you as you name them relate to the higher educational policies of the government for example these apprenticeship models that are coming or that have started and the government is advertising and prioritizing them i, I mean i would characterize of what's happening in government policy at the moment is about the reassertion of privilege. So, so, so you've kind of got a movement to say, okay, well, we've had too great an expansion of higher education. There are too many people going to university. And really what we want to do is we want to have different kinds of education for different kinds of people. So, so really when ministers are talking about the value of degree apprenticeships, they're not imagining that their children have studied degree apprenticeships. These, 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 these are qualifications for other people's children and those people are poorer and less privileged. So, so for me, and you can see it in terms of the way, the way in which the IFS is, is, is seeking to move to judging institutions on outcomes regardless of the intakes of their students you know and this is kind of positioned in a, in a kind of language of empowerment of saying we should expect the same success for all students regardless of their background but it's but it's just nonsense we know that our more elite institutions take more privileged students who who you know in terms of their educational success that's a far more straightforward thing 
to, to achieve than it is working with a greater range of students, introducing them to knowledge that can really transform their lives, but requires a, a lot more thought about their education and, and is much more challenging to, to succeed. So there's this kind of re-establish, you know, this kind of fight to re-establish the notion that the, the opportunity is flat and therefore if everyone is given the same, therefore that's fair. And that simply um, obscures the level of inequality, the way in which within education, basically social privilege gets mistaken for ability. Yes. And what that ends up doing is it basically says people who've had loads of privileges, you know, you end up implying that they're a lot brighter um, than people who've had less less opportunities and less privilege. And for me, all that does is that, that just reproduces inequalities, but it's kind of even worse than that because it kind of reproduces inequality while at the same time saying, well, everyone's had the same chance. So there's something just about these outcomes and those outcomes are not just. So then do you think it is possible to convince governments to take your view of bringing students into a transformational relationship to knowledge that changes their sense of who they are and what they can do in the world instead of this sort of labor or you know economy focused uh, outcome of higher education do you think do you think we'll be able to convince the governments and if yes how <laughs> no I, I don't really think that's what I'm, what I'm trying to do so 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 i think from my point of view politicians have a very political yeah, a, a very different perspective or policymakers have a different perspective to, to the one I have. So it's not that what I'm saying to policymakers is you need to see this in the way that I do because they're trying to do something different mm -hmm. than what I'm trying to do. Um, or, but but so, so I'm not trying to get them to see it in the same way as, as, as I am. What I'm trying to do is to say, if we think about this educationally, what's important? And I think... You know, so, so so it's not it's not that I, I want them to to adopt the way in which I'm arguing within the book. It's rather that, that I want there to be an account taken of what higher education does educationally and for that to be part of the argument. And that and that should, you know, the whole point and what I try and get to in the manifesto is is a sense that this is one voice that at the moment is kind of not heard loudly enough in, in those discussions, but it's still only one voice. So, so, so I'm not saying that there's something illegitimate about economic priorities. There might be really good reasons in particular contexts to prioritize those. What I want to happen is for the debate to actually take account of a range of voices and, and to that to be the basis of discussion rather than where we are at the moment where kind of you know the office for students can can kind of mirror government talk about low value degrees in terms of lack of um employment outcomes and that to be completely uncontested you know and and kind of you know what we have at the moment is a kind of version and and um and, you know there there was a piece in the um, a, a blog and a, a happy blog by the interim head of the OFS kind of um, today talking about different outcomes for higher education and saying, you know, the, these measures in terms of 
um, re retention of students and students' success in terms of employment. Clearly, they're not the only measures. There are other measures, but they're the ones we're using. And, and there's a real, you know, there's a real problem in that position because it's not that we we measure what we value. It is not, you know, all the evidence show that what you measure is end up is what ends up being valued. Yeah. And so so this kind of way of way of approaching this that the government and office for students have at the moment, they say, well, we're just going to use these as indicators, but we know they're not the only important thing. What that is guaranteed to do is to make those measures the only important thing. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you talk about measurement. And you did mention this right at the start about, for example, the health of um, undergraduates um, and, you know, low rate of crime amongst, you know, again, graduates rather. Um, so if if we talk about this broader sense uh, in terms of contribution of graduates to society, including the labour market, as you say, not excluding it, um, is there anything you would like to add about what can be measured then or evaluated or should it be measured at all? I mean, I mean, clearly you need some form of measurement. Um, and, and I think part of what's important is recognizing how partial any measurement is. Mm -hmm. So so I, I talk in the book, I think about about these are often presented as if they're laser-like judgments and they're much more like sledgehammers, <laughs> they're much more kind of rough and ready, and they'll kind of do. Um, but they're problematic. So, so, so I do think there are things we can think about and measure about the contribution of graduates to society. I think the argument I would make is that what what tends to happen is we can tend to kind of say, okay, let's look at look at what graduates go on and do, and separate them from the rest of society. And I'd be much more interested in trying to think through measures that actually look at graduates as part of society. And how they how they kind of interact with with non graduates with other factors in society in order to kind of um, you know to progress that society. So I think it would be far more interested to actually look at the health of society generally in mm -hmm. relation to the graduates you have, rather than looking at outcomes for graduates. So so how is it that particular forms and contributions of higher education contribute? to societal outcomes as a whole, rather than simply how do graduates benefit from engaging with higher education? Yeah, so would you say we need uh, maybe a, a wider picture than, than there is now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so, so it's actually about how does, how does higher education contribute to how society as a whole? So, so to give you an example of the kind of opposite way of thinking is that often people talk about graduate premiums as a measure. So, so how much more do graduates earn than non-graduates? That's your graduate premium, and that's presented as a good thing. But all that is, is a measure of inequality in society. The societies with the highest graduate premiums are the most unequal society. So, so why would a graduate premium be a good thing? You know, actually earning, you know, actually having a far flatter system in which people, you know, whether or not you go to university or not, doesn't determine your future earnings be a much fairer equal system but wouldn't undermine the value of studying for a degree so so again kind of when you separate out graduates from non-graduates you end up with these kind of strange kind of measures in which things actually aren't particularly healthy for society and presented as if they're good so for example the fact that you know rates of crime in relation to graduates is lower than from non-graduates 
should be a warning bell for society, not something that is seen as a benefit of higher education. So um, let's talk about this social, you did again um, mention this at the beginning, but um, the social contract of universities enabling social mobility and social privilege, and to a certain extent, um, you know, expanding their their own prestige, institutions prestige, and of course the the graduates prestige. Uh, what are your views on the university's ability to provide the less privileged a platform by which they can access the privilege? And do you think this perpetuates the system of a tiered society and and social mobility? Yes, but maybe as opposed to a, a social equilibrium, as you talked about, you know, a more even playing ground what are your views on that so so as a starting point you know it's none of this is all or nothing so so in a way higher education universities are always to a very great extent reproductive of inequality and they in other ways challenge it so so it's never that it's one or the other there's always kind of aspects of it that reproduce inequality aspects of it that challenge it and, and, and that will always be the case. However, I think one of the real, really big challenges for higher education and for universities is that the more you push an elite model of higher education, the more you talk about the brightest and the best, the more you position the, you know, things in terms of there are some people who are brilliant and other people who are just not worth bothering with, the more you'll perpetuate inequality. So, so for me, thinking about this in terms of how do we give access to powerful knowledge to anyone who's interested, rather than in terms of how do we educate the brightest and the best, you know, that that's central to having an inclusive and transform transformative higher education systems rather than an elite reproductive one. So, 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 and even if you had a um, inclusive transformative system, that, that would still do some aspects of social reproduction. But, you know, those things, those inequalities would still exist to an extent. But at the moment, when there's such an emphasis on elite higher education, so, you know, the government, the, the Sutton Trust, the brilliant club, this focus on getting, you know, the brightest and the best, less privileged students into elite institution, all of that discourse simply serves to reinforce inequalities because it kind of positions it that there are some people who are brilliant and other people who aren't. And I, and I just think, you know, those measures of brilliance are so informed by actual me measures of social privilege rather than ability that in the end they're pernicious and they just serve to basically tell people who, who've been failed by the system that that is their fault rather than a fault with the system. So you did again talk about this um, a little bit but you know we, we talked about this student premium and you know graduates earning more than um, maybe um, non-graduates um, but HE is almost um, is being promoted as too expensive for what it's worth. Um, do you agree with that? Or what are your views uh, in the manifesto about this? Not only for the university as a social institution, but for the societies in large. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 a very tricky question. So 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 because so, so the question of whether it's too expensive for what it's worth, 
you know, it's it's to me, it's not a straightforward question either either way. It's, it's yeah. not straight straightforward that it, it's obviously too expensive. It's not, you know, I think it's equally problematic to go, oh no, this is brilliant value. This will serve you for the rest of your life. I think you have to take more thoughtful um, position on both questions. Clearly, how we fund higher education is crucial to that. Yeah. And, and looking at the interest rates um, that graduates face on their student loans that they never expected to face, you know, the, the, you know, the, there's something really difficult and problematic there. Equally, um, when you have, you know, a higher education system that is that excludes a lot of people but is paid for through general taxation. That's very regressive and, and and really problematic. So so there are not easy answers to how you fairly fund higher education and what it's worth, you know, what it's worth for any individual or government or society to pay for it. It's something to be discussed. But what's central to that is that whatever discussion you have, part of the onus has to be on universities and higher education institutions to provide an education that is a high quality education experience for students as something that 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 that, that really thinks carefully about well if we're, we're having students studying this course and where are these students coming from and how do we design a course that works for these students and where does that take them in the world and how do we know it takes them there in the world and to take take that educational responsibility of what journey are we taking taking our students on and where do we think think that takes them as as a really important question to be considered rather than something that we kind of don't actually you know really seriously question about the value of what we're offering um, our graduates in terms of what we've offered them. Yeah, and I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I understand this question of quality being more about the quality for the society as well as the the students and, you know, of the learning. Would, would that be fair to say of the, in the manifesto? Yeah, um, certainly that's, yeah, yeah, in a way, they're kind of two different kinds of questions that you need to think about both. So mm -hmm. clearly, that you know, there is nothing, you know, so sometimes that, we can the kind of student as consumer debate can 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 almost imply there's something illegitimate about students saying where does this take me what can I do with this knowledge you know you know what can I do post graduation as if they're somehow being instrumental no that, that that's you know that's always a question that, that that is fair enough to ask and if and if universities can't answer that question then that's a problem for universities it's not a problem with the student so so that individual lens of what benefit is there in these these particular degree programs is important but also the societal level of we have um, students studying these range of subjects and graduating what's the societal benefit of that you know it's a different order of question but it's equally important excellent and um finally um if you started writing the manifesto today, how would the COVID-19 pandemic and the changes brought about by it um, would influence influence the manifesto? Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> uncomfortably, I don't think it particularly would. And I kind of, okay. why I say that? I'm like, okay, are you sure? Sounds a bit arrogant, Paul. Um, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, the, there's an element of, of um, part of the argument 
in the manifesto is that there's no mystery about what um, counts as high quality learning and teaching in higher education. So if you look at what happened when the teaching excellence framework was in introduced in England, the, the documents that underpin that initiative said, oh, no one knows what teaching excellence is in higher education. Da, 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 da. And you know, th th that was nonsense. You know, we've got over 50 years of research that from different perspectives will broadly tell us the same things, the same principles that underpin a high quality education. What the assertion about no one um, knows what teaching excellence looks like was based on is that no universities could agree on what it was because when they were asked, every university said, oh yeah, what we do is excellent. And so you ended up with all these different versions of excellence. Yeah, but that's not the same thing. So, so, so for me, you know, given that we have these principles that underpin what a high quality education looks like, that's what the book tries to express. And the pandemic hasn't changed that. What the pandemic's done is changed the context in which that takes place. And for me, you know, the educational process is always about particular students engaging with particular bodies of knowledge in a particular context. And if any one of those three things change, then the education may well need to change. So if the students change, then, then, then you need to think about the educational design again for different forms of knowledge in different disciplines or professional fields. You know what, you know what gives students effective access will be different. And again, the context, whether you know whether online, um, face to face, you know whether in a three-year degree or or a different form, all of those raise contextual issues about how you design that that education. So, so whilst the kind of details changed by the pandemic the underlining principles of what a good education looked like don't particularly change brilliant thank you so much for your time paul um it was lovely to have you here for for those of you just to remind that we have spoken to professor paul ashwin uh head of the department for educational research at Lancaster university and our focus was his book with the title transforming university education uh, manifesto which was published in late 2020. paul thank you so much for your time Thanks, Anna.